Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. We're the hosts of the Places Where We Go podcast. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places in our own local backyard. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. Welcome back to another episode of The Places Where We Go, where we're continuing our journey in Montana. So if you've been listening to the last few episodes, we've taken you to Glacier National Park, which was the main reason that we went to Montana. But as we often do, once we pay money for a plane ticket to get us someplace, we say, hey, if there's more stuff to soak up, let's do that. And we did that in Montana. So we said, hey, after we spend a week or so in Glacier National Park, we'll drive around the state and hit a few more things. So today we're going to take you to the first place we went after Glacier National Park, which is the city of Great Falls. Very specifically, we went to Great Falls because you had found a what they call an interpretive center that has a connection to my interests. And that would be the Lewis and Clark interpretive center in great falls montana behind it was this massive river that lewis and clark had actually navigated as they went through montana the lewis and clark interpretive center would be the main event of our journey to great falls in deciding where we would go elsewhere in montana i think the main thing i consulted was the national park passport book Because there's other places connected to the national park system spread out through the state. So we selected some of those. And uh, in this episode and some of the following episodes, that's going to be the uh, connecting theme between the various places that we selected. So leaving Glacier National Park, we left on an early morning driving out of the, the park. We had a chance to see a grizzly by the river. Yes, that was very cool. I think you spotted him first, or her, and we immediately pulled over. And of course, that attracted others to pull over. And this grizzly was just eating, just pulling over, mostly logs, I guess. That's what they pull over and eating the insects that are in the logs. And it was um, kind of fun to watch. Mm -hmm. The grizzly does not care as long as you don't get close to him. And we were far enough away. Oh, yeah. 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 We were definitely far enough away. If you get too close to a grizzly, they're going to let you know. So you don't walk towards one. You keep your distance. But beautiful, beautiful animal. Just gorgeous. So that was nice to see as we were leaving the park. We would then drive through Blackfeet Indian Country. We cut over east to the I-15 and then traveled south to Great Falls. That whole journey, about three hours of road time, and... By early afternoon, we found ourselves at the main event, the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center. So we arrive at the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, find a parking spot, and do a little tour of the outside. They had a little patio area that had a lot of native plants from the area, which was labeled, so you got a good sense of uh, some plants that were described 
in the Lewis and Clark expedition papers. And that was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed that. They did a lot of discovery along the way, animals, plants. So to be able to kind of look at the plant and identify the plant and know that it was actually something that was written down in, in this a massive historical journal is pretty cool. I yeah. liked it. So why is it that we came to this Lewis and Clark Center, Julie? Well, I think I have said in other past podcasts, and I'm not, I wouldn't know which ones exactly, but that I have this family oral legend that my grandmother's side on my mom's side is connected to William Clark of the William Clark expeditions. As in direct descendants. No, no, no. No? No. I think there was confusion if it was direct descendant or not way early on in the family history when it started getting like mumbled up a little bit. And in doing current genealogy... I now understand that the it's not a direct line. I believe it's a line from his uncle, which would be a brother of his father. Okay, so in in my world, that's close enough. It's close enough. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. I bet I bet William knew his uncle very well. So. Again, so as as we go through oh, and by the way, I think this probably marks our two year anniversary of the podcast. Oh. So in our two years, we have found that you've been related to in England, I have all kinds of connections to some bad people in England. The um, but lots of famous people, lots of lots of well-known historical people. Richard the Kingmaker would be one. You're related to I don't know if the same guy or not. Somebody who was part of the castle, the Raglan Castle, the Raglan Castle. But all of these connections have connections to royalty. Yes, in ancient. England. Yes. So. And then you keep going because in America, you say that you somehow related to Lewis and Clark. You know who I'm related to famous? Nobody. <laughs> you don't know that. Uh, well. You don't know that. You know, there, there's been an occasional story here or there. And I think it's all a bunch of, you know what? Because because no, nobody's been able to prove anything. So all well, I know. A little bit different yeah. for you because all the records in Poland were pretty much destroyed. Well, my people come from rural Poland, so my grandfather had a small farmish kind of place. My well, mom's yeah, and, dad and too. And all those mm-hmm. lands are now don't even belong to Poland anymore. So all those records were probably destroyed. Yeah. So you have no idea who yeah, you're really but you know related what? to. I'm okay with it. I don't. I don't need to be related <laughs> to anybody famous. I'm, I'm, I don't need to either. But I'm, it's kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I get my uh, fame in the family thing from you. Okay. Okay. Anyways, I interrupted. I pass it on to you. So anyway, after that little diversion, this interpretive center was something that was a very pleasant surprise for me. It is a wealth of historical information about that region, specifically Great Falls, including all the native cultures and most importantly, the journey of the Corps of Discovery, which is the Lewis and Clark Expedition. I would say it's a place to go to and to visit because I think it was uh, immensely interesting. So we get there. We're hoping to have some kind of aha moment with my family tree. And we had noticed, or I think you noticed actually first, that there was a library on the premises. And it was an archival library that had we learned afterwards that had genealogical records when we spoke to a wonderful woman um, that helped us out immensely when we're trying to 
get some information. And unfortunately, the librarian was not there. She had already gone home for the day, but we got some contact information. And I did come back and contact this person. And she has been extremely helpful. Wonderful lady. So I've got some new information and I'm going to start going with that and working with that. It was a very well thought out museum uh, once we got in there and we started our tour. I thought it flowed very well. I thought it sectioned off uh, the different time periods of the expedition itself, where they were, what they ran into, what they had to deal with. So I thought it was really, really well done. It was also really well done in the sense that you kind of got a chance to immerse yourself into it. Lots of easy information that you can read on every display that was presented to us. I I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot. Yeah, I think this is one of those places where if all you do is walk through the doors and then just whiz past this picture and this case of stuff, I mean, you can be in and out the door fairly quickly and you're going to miss the story. This is one of those places where it pays to take your time, read what they've put together Mm -hmm. to describe the exhibits. Because if you invest that time, you know, a few hours, that's how you walk away with a better understanding of the story in this particular case of Lewis and Clark. And you can also then walk away with forming your own questions, your own, I guess, your own assessment of what happened. Because yes, there's the the history presented, but you know, you and I, you know, when we go to these things, we'll often end these visits with a chat about, you know, what did you think? And we sometimes challenge ourselves with, you know, what did you think about the way they portrayed such and Mm -hmm. such? And, you know, we try to think about it from the angles of various people who were impacted by whatever the events are, because there's always many characters in a story. And sometimes the labels are about a specific person or a specific entity. Mm -hmm. So... And we did kind of walk away from this with a discussion. And one of the things we had discussed was we didn't get a lot of this history when we were in school. And some people, depending on generations, I guess, don't know about Clark and Lewis and the Corps of Discovery expedition at all. They're getting none of this information. So a little refresher. From 1803 until 1806, Captain Meriwether Lewis and William Clark explored this gorgeous country that up until that time was pretty much explored to an extent by trappers, but some trappers hadn't even gotten as far as Lewis and Clark had gone to. They were sent out by President Thomas Jefferson because there was an opportunity for him to gather information before other nations took hold of this area. If you had knowledge about history, you know that there were other nations that were physically here during that time and had laid claim to territory. So in 1803, our president, Thomas Jefferson, while he was at home in Monticello, had this vision of the U.S. expanding out on this whole huge continent from the Atlantic, where he was, all the way to the other side of the continent and the Pacific Ocean. And before he could do this, he had to know what was out there. Therefore, he contacted his friend, 
Meriwether Lewis and asked him to put together this expedition. And Meriwether Lewis then contacted William Clark to be a part of this. And the two of them together became this amazing team while gathering others. You can't do this with two people. You have to have a group of people to do this. And they did something that was absolutely amazing to travel across this whole continent, not knowing anything about what they were heading into, knowing that there was possibly Native American tribes out there that could be hostile to them, not knowing if they were able to cross certain sections due to possibly high altitude mountains or impassable mountains or water that was impassable. I mean, they didn't know. And off they went. I've heard it described that back when they went on this journey, it would be analogous to people today exploring outer space. Mm. So in our lifetime, man has been all over the planet, Earth. So our next unknown is out there in outer space, different planets, et cetera. But like you mentioned, at the time of Lewis and Clark, they knew in America kind of how things looked, et cetera, up to the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And kind of, you know, once you start heading west of that, not so much. Yeah. There was a purchase. We call it the Louisiana Purchase, which was a sweet deal for America. And off, you know, Lewis and Clark went to explore this area and beyond. And there was many countries that were eyeing this land also and had their foot on it, including France, Britain, Russia, and Spain. So we had a connection to the south. There was a connection on the west. France was connected through Canada and that whole section there. And down in Louisiana territory. Down into Louisiana territory. So it had to have been quite a feat for Thomas Jefferson to be able to expand out and acquire these lands for the United States of America. Yeah. His emissaries negotiated the Louisiana Purchase, so he was interested to find out what he got as part of this deal that he made. So, and they knew there was land beyond. Yeah. And they, yeah. And I think this is an example of one of the things we probably had talked about because, you know, I remember looking at the map at the museum. And you saw, here's the area that France occupied, and here's where Spain occupied. And we know from our past travels up and down the Pacific coast, there were places where Russia Mm -hmm. had some footholds, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think about what would things have been like if the Louisiana Purchase didn't happen, Mm -hmm. and if this westward expansion didn't happen. And I get there's a lot of people who have an opinion that there's some not good elements that came out of that. I get it. But I also think about if those things didn't happen, we could be living in a country today where it it wouldn't have been one country, but it could have been kind of like in Europe where mm-hmm. the United States could have been a little more than the original colonies on the eastern side. You could have had a French area in Louisiana and mm-hmm. beyond that. You could have had from Alaska down to even Northern California, a Russian Russian country, Spain controlling California, Arizona, etc. And in all those cases, we'd be speaking different languages because if the French controlled the French area, 
they wouldn't be speaking English like we are today. They would be speaking French, same as in you know the territories that would have been controlled by other nations, just like life is in Europe. When you mm-hmm. go there, whatever the boundaries of the country are, you're speaking German in Germany, Polish in Poland, you know, and so on and so on. And that's one of those things I think about is things could have been so vastly different. I think take it for granted today that we can go from Boston to Las Vegas and everywhere in between, we speak the same language, we spend the same money, everything is kind of the same. And it could have been where you would need a passport to get from one place to another, you would need different currency, there might be blockages that would prohibit you from going from one place to another, kind of like today. I mean, we have COVID, but we can't go, we haven't been able to go to Canada for Mm -hmm. a couple of years. And you'll think about what that could have been like. So I'm going to go down that that rabbit hole. But that's like one of those examples. If you go to a place like this, you see this information and you can step back and think, hmm, what if that didn't happen? Yeah. Then then right. what, what would have been? So anyways, one of the things we learned is that Congress helped to underwrite this famous expedition and the financial package to finance the adventures of Lewis and Clark in 1803 totaled a whopping... And Jefferson instructed the expedition to carefully document numerous aspects, including ethnography. He wanted to know about Indian traditions, languages, and lifestyles throughout the country. Meteorology. He wanted them to take temperature readings, notes on precipitation. Geography, of course, you know, to map out the rivers, the plains, the mountain ranges that they would encounter and take notes on geology, botany, zoology, what were the plants and the animals of the country? Because again, so much unknown. There was a map that we had seen of the United States as it was drawn at the time of Lewis and Clark's beginning of their adventure in 1803. And that map of the United States showed these cities and all of the places that were known up to the Mississippi River. And then once you got to the Mississippi River, it was like a blank canvas because yeah. they, they hadn't they gone know. there and they didn't know what was there. So part of what Lewis and Clark had the opportunity to do was to start filling out the map, what was there. We did enjoy the entire Interpretive Center, but there, there were a few highlights. There was a presentation, a video presentation and a ranger talk at a theater inside the building And they said that, you know, you can go ahead and look around and then at such and such a time there was going to be this presentation. So we kind of waited around in the front section and and looked around and and the gift shop was there too. So we looked in the gift shop and then they announced the presentation was going to begin. So we went in and sat down and there was a park ranger. She came out and she was talking about the mammals in the area of Great Falls, Montana and she had some skulls, some were man-made skulls, but there was a couple that were actual animal skulls. And she did a wonderful presentation on the animals of the area, what they ate, why their skulls had particular protrusions or marking or the teeth, why there was a, a man-eater had these type of teeth and so on and so forth. So, and she was very good at what she did too. She was a good orator. So I enjoyed her talk. And then you got a chance to actually touch all these bones. 
and take a look at them and it was enjoyable and they passed the heads around to they the, passed the it audience. Yeah, they passed yes. it around that park ranger was running up and down those stairs passing these skulls around and they would come through and people got a chance to look at it mm-hmm. so that was nice i really i enjoyed it a lot you can tell she loved her job mm-hmm. and so and it really showed the other thing that we got a chance to see as we walked through was information about the native americans of the area The Corps of Discovery encountered many Native Americans, and they were very, very diverse, and some of them extremely generous as the Corps of Discovery moved through their countries. Yeah, I think to Lewis and Clark, surprisingly generous. Yeah. Because I think they came expecting potential hostilities. Mm -hmm. They didn't know. know. All kinds of encounters that would not go well, and they seem to have encountered just the opposite. Yeah, they, they were provided shelter they were given supplies there was plenty of cooperation with the native americans that they met they just showed a sense of goodwill towards them and lewis and clark were extremely pleased by their interactions with the peoples of the area and um, they were able to get through some of the harder times by picking their brains for information. If we went this way, what are we going to see? What's the best way to pass through if we want to get to this section? What? And of course, they lived there, so they had all the information to pass on to them. It was interesting. One of the displays had how it was all interpreted. So they had like four or five people that would interpret it from English to French, then maybe to the native language, and then back to... And it was just this whole back and forth, back and forth, back and forth... And they were able to communicate that way. And I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Lewis and Clark were also able to see how the tribes worked with each other as far as trade goes between the tribes. It was very, very interesting to me to read how these Indians used their goods as trade and how it became quite a huge enterprise where they would actually meet together at, you know, a certain place on the Columbia River and called the Dallas or Dulles or something. D-A-L-L-E-S. We're not 100% sure yeah, how to pronounce sure. it. Yeah, we're not sure. Yeah, but it, it was the place where they gathered and they met and the trade took place. Yeah, very sophisticated, very sophisticated. marketplaces. Yeah. yeah. There was the uh, one tribe called the Lakota that had an actual monopoly on trade with the Indian tribes. And they were a little upset when Lewis and Clark entered the uh, picture because they thought that it was going to interfere with their trade uh, market. So they were in, in, apparently were not in favor of a free market type of approaches. One of the highlights of the expedition that's portrayed at the center in a big way is what was called the Great Falls Portage. So this was the climactic moment the midpoint of the journey where Lewis and Clark in this area of Great Falls encountered these gullies, these steep hills that became this, oh my gosh moment, how do we get beyond this particular point? So they had an 18 mile area that they had to cross, but this 18 miles would take them 11 exhausting days and it would require a whole bunch of round trips going back and forth that would total 130 miles by the time everything was done. And it was quite a feat to get through this area. And so when you're at the center, there's 
this enormous diorama that depicts them trying to get their canoes up the hills and past the streams that otherwise were impassable. And you get a sense of just how difficult making this journey was. I mean, there was no highways and where Mm -hmm. they thought that they might be able to just, you know, navigate on the waterways. There were some points where they had to get their canoes out on land and haul them up some steep cliffs. Literally up steep cliffs. And the diorama that you're talking about was really well done because you can almost feel the um, effort it took to do that. Yeah. So that's one of the featured points of the trip that gets a big play at at the center. And then the, um, you know, we continue to go through the exhibit and learned about their journey up until they would get to the Pacific coast. On November 7th, 1805, they finally caught a glimpse of the Pacific Ocean. During their four-month stay on the West Coast, they encountered rain all but 12 days in that four months. So there was sun for only six days out of this four-month stay. I remember reading, I think, I don't know if it was Lewis or Clark, but one of them in their journals you could tell that they got that gray sky syndrome in a massive yeah, way. I yeah. mean, they just were, it sounded like yeah. almost going into a depression. Yeah, you know. and it was nothing but tromping through mud and that gray, wet, mm. wet sky. And yeah, it was something that really affected them emotionally. Mm-hmm. And they were very much ready to uh, go back to their homes, but they realized that they would have to retrace their steps to go back and they needed a space of time where they wouldn't run into elements that would prevent them from getting back. So that's why they had to stay for that four months to have that window of time where they could go back across these mountainous areas without having to deal with blizzards and snow and and the impassable part of that. There was also a point where Lewis and Clark actually split up and they decided that they wanted to get more information. So Lewis took one route and Clark took the other route and they had planned on meeting up at a certain place. And at that point, Clark had actually encountered some Indians on the return trip. And this tribe, the Absoluka, were known. It was part of their right of entering... Kind of manhood. Manhood, yeah, I guess that. And what they do is they would steal horses. So William Clark had all their horses, and I believe it was all of them. I think so. 50 uh, 50 of them taken from them on his return trip back so that was a bummer (laughs) so that he was not happy about that uh there was writings on that and he was pretty angry yeah so see (laughs) we learned a few things at the center that we were able to share and reflect i mean we ended up spending close to three hours there yeah and um yeah and i felt like i learned more about lewis and clark in our afternoon Mm -hmm. there than i did in the three or four paragraphs that were probably in my history book in junior high that absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. So final thoughts on the center? Very informative. I enjoyed it. It started with the commission by Thomas Jefferson for the exploration, went all the way through the entire journey, and then the return trip home. So it encompassed pretty much everything. It also spoke of the preparation that it took um, Meriwether Lewis to get this whole expedition put together prior to its leaving from its starting point when William Clark met up with them. 
So it was a little bit more expansive than just Lewis and Clark. It also started with uh, Meriwether Lewis and everything that he did to put this together. Hey, we forgot to talk about one of the main characters that many people know about, Mm -hmm. and that would be Sakajawija. And I probably said that wrong. No, I think you did. I think you said it right. Well, maybe yes, but also maybe no, because one of the things that was on one of the displays, there was, there seems to be discrepancy about how you pronounce her name. And there's like multiple ways of saying it, but there's sufficient attention given to her story there as well. And so there's lots of things to learn about here. Her story, her son, the trapper that she was married to. I mean, there was, it encompassed the whole aspect of this expedition i thought and yeah i just thought it was really good so if you like history if you want to you know get an appreciation for some of the some of that adventurousness that happened to that, that was part of shaping this country if you're in montana three hours away from glacier national park you could be at the center and uh, spend a nice afternoon soaking this up now one of the things we learned when we got here because i ended up running back out to the car because i didn't know this if you have the national parks annual pass that will get you into the center for free of course if you went to glacier national park you would have bought yourself the annual pass so bring that with you when you go to the center you'll get in for free and i also didn't know this if you have the national park passport book which you all know by now that we do there's also a stamp available at this center for the book so we stamped our book i remember you got yours stamped she did it upside down too oh she did yeah well because i i always stamp it myself and she offered to stamp it for me and she did it she did it upside down Uh. and then there was a guy next to you going oh oh no darn it i left mine in the car so it's like he didn't know either so after that back in the car we went but we did have on our stay in great falls we basically gave ourselves just one day in the city the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center was the main event, but we also had scoped out at least one other thing to see because it sounded really intriguing. <laughs> you always find those off the beaten path stuff. So half a mile from the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center is the Giant Springs State Park, Row, and that's spelled R-O-E, River. This river is the shortest river in America. So we had to stop there. You, We had to see it. And we parked and got off and started walking this park and looking for it. And we had a little trouble finding it. Probably because it was so short. How short is it, Julie? 200 feet. That's all it is, is 200 feet. It was very extremely fascinating because where it started was an actual spring. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea we were going to run into that. So it was really beautiful too. And you could see several bubbles of spring water coming up, but it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And it was literally just 200 feet. Yeah. So 200 feet is twice the distance between first and second base for you baseball players. And yeah, one of the ironies here is you've got the shortest river in America It empties into the longest river in North America. So it was a fun little addition. I really enjoyed that. And we stayed a little longer because we kind of walked around and enjoyed that that area there. And it was a very small park. 
but it did have a little playground. It had some uh, tables for eating if you chose to have a little picnic there. And I think it's also connected to what I read about afterwards. There's apparently 48 miles of trail mm-hmm. that go along the riverbank. So if somebody had more time to spend for hiking, biking, just enjoying the outdoors, you can go for miles and hours and hours enjoying yeah. what, what's here. So where does it get its name? Where does, it, where does the Roe River get its name? Where does the Roe River get its name? Do you know? Roe means fish eggs. So it was named because it has a next-door neighbor proximity to the state, their fish hatchery, and which is still there to this day. Yeah, we walked by it and saw, saw all kinds of fish. I believe they are famous for raising trout, over 1 million rainbow trout annually here, which brings me to my complaint one of my complaints, probably my, <laughs> probably your I, only, maybe my only complaint yeah. of our, our time in Montana. So, okay, here we go. We're at Giant Spring State Park. There is a fish hatchery there, which produces over a million trout every single year. So the two of us, as we're making our way from city to city to city in Montana, we're saying to ourselves, geez, we'd love to get ourselves a nice trout dinner. Yeah. And I looked up on Yelp, Great Falls, probably like every restaurant I could come across, no trout. The next city that we'll talk about on our next episode, same thing, Yelp after Yelp after Yelp, you know, looking at the menus, no trout. Our final city in Montana, same deal. We we must have looked at, I can't tell you how many dozens of restaurants and between the fish hatchery and just knowing all the rivers that are in Montana that have trout, and fishing is huge yeah. in Montana. So I don't know what they do with their trout, but they, they apparently... They export them out, apparently. Not yeah. to the Montana restaurants. <laughs> and I'm sure that there is some restaurant somewhere in Montana, and there's probably more than one that has trout. But during our travels, we specifically wanted to eat some trout couldn't and find it. couldn't find it. So, So there you go. So Great Falls, we were there basically for an afternoon... We stayed the night, and then the next morning we would be gone. For our lodging, we ended up, at this day, staying at the Crystal Inn Hotel and Suites. So I would kind of characterize this as your typical hotel. Mm -hmm. It actually had a pretty spacious-sized room, king-size bed, nice seating area, mini-mart kind of assortment of snacks, etc. In the lobby, there was a continental breakfast that started at 6 a.m. The breakfast was complimentary, but I would characterize it as super, super basic. So a few cereals, some bagels, coffee. Yeah. It was I, f- I don't know if that was normal or if it was impacted by COVID. I bet I, it was close know. to normal. But there was a sign in the lobby of the hotel that caught my eye, and it read... Travel is the frivolous part of serious lives and the serious part of frivolous lives. And I kind of like that. We did stop and have dinner. We stopped at the Mackenzie River Pizza Company. The trout company? Oh, I'm sorry, the pizza company. Remember, we couldn't find those, those little fishies. But they have more than pizza, so no worries. It was very popular. Lots of people coming in. It was Wednesday evening for us, and we thought that, you know, we wouldn't really have a wait, but there was a 45-minute wait at this pizza company, and they also did takeout orders, too, so I'm sure the kitchen was very busy. It did have a pretty good menu size, and we spied a couple of things that would work for us, uh, you know, since we 
don't do the meat and we couldn't find the trout. So we had a nice spinach salad and some veggie wraps and that was quite satisfying. It was like one of the first salads we had in a long time. And I had a Montana IPA and we split the salad and we were happy and we went back to the hotel. Yeah, that seems to be, I think, common for us when we travel is whenever we're in in a new place, we're trying this food, that food, and, you know, trying things we don't usually get. But usually like a week into a trip, that's when it becomes time for a salad. Yeah. And this was about that time. Yeah, Yeah. I was craving it actually. So it hit the spot for me. Yeah. So we had... As I mentioned, just one day in Great Falls, but had we had more time, there's a few things that came up that we would have added Mm -hmm. to our itinerary. So if you have more time in Great Falls, a few things you might think about include the Charles M. Russell Museum. He was known as America's cowboy artist who captured some amazing landscapes, wildlife, and cultures of the West. We had a chance to see some of his art in a couple of cities Actually, I think in the next city that we would stop into, which you'll have to listen to next time. But he's considered one of the most important artists of his time, one of the most important American artists. His house and studio are part of the museum complex. So if you like art, you might want to check that out. The next would be the First People's Buffalo Jump State Park and National Historic Landmark. It is one of the most significant buffalo jumps in North America It was used before the arrival of the horse to the Northern Plains. The park has a visitor center and over three miles of hiking trails with archaeological and natural points of interest. Another thing that you might want to soak up, and um, my gosh, if you're going to Great Falls, this should be like a must thing to see. We just couldn't do it because we just didn't have the time. But to actually see the Great Falls themselves of the Missouri. So they were formed, they say, about 13,000 years ago, a remnant of the Ice Age, and when some of the ice gave way, the falls were created. An area that Lewis and Clark journeyed through, they surveyed the area, and just some amazing natural features that you can add on to a visit in this city. And if we had a whole lot more time... I mean, a lot more time. Like months. Yeah. I would like to do the Lewis and Clark Trail and and go over multiple states and stop in places of interest all along that trail. We picked up a brochure that has 61 stops on the trail from Pennsylvania to the east of Missouri on the west. And this, before you get to the related stops west of Mississippi River... Modern adventurers like us can see more of their historic trail all the way to the Pacific Ocean. That would be my dream vacation. Maybe someday we will. that would be it. Yes. Hey, fun fact time, Julie. Okay, let's talk about Great Falls, Montana, which has the most rapid temperature changes registered in the United States. From negative 32 Fahrenheit to 15 Fahrenheit, in seven minutes on January 11th, 1980. And Great Falls is known as the Western art capital of the world. Who knew? I didn't. Mm -hmm. And it's also known as the electric city due to the fact that there's five hydroelectric dams in the area. So that's our um, a little less than 24 hours in Great Falls. We did enough to feel busy during the time that we were there. And as we Mm -hmm. mentioned, there's even more to do there. So I would go back. If we were ever in Montana, I would definitely go back. Hit maybe some more of those Lewis and Clark points of interest. And again, like if you've got 
time on a vacation to extend a trip to someplace like Glacier, this is an example of an add-on thing that you can do to your time exploring some of the great national parks. So thank you so much for joining us on The Places Where We Go. We love bringing you our adventures. And if you're not subscribing to us yet, take a minute to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast of your favorite source and catch up on all our episodes, past and future. Two years now and more to come. So bye for now. And again, thanks for joining us. If you have any comments or info to share with us about travel, you can write us at comments at theplaceswherewego.com. You can also follow us on social media. Right now we're on Twitter and Instagram, both at The Places Where We Go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at The Places Where We Go. See you next time. Bye now.